0: I think there were several of us who saw, hey, we have romance roots, but we still love the mystery. We still love the suspense. We still love wartime books or we still love, you know, spy novels. And so the way I felt about it was that the attraction heightens both elements of the story because you're never more afraid than when someone you care about is in danger. That was the voice of Sandra Brown.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Fated Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels, and I write them. I'm Jennifer Procup. I am a romance reader and editor. And this week, for our first Trailblazer episode of Season 4, we are absolutely beyond thrilled to have had a conversation with absolute fucking legend... As Tom Hardy would say, <laughs> Sandra Brown. Yeah, we recorded with Sandra uh, in August, I think. That
2: sounds right. And we will be talking with her today about her life in romance, about her new novel, Blind Tiger, about her many, many, many New York Times bestsellers, and just about all the amazing history and stories she has Um, as a romance uh, writer, and
1: how she started in the business and where she is now. I think that was the best part of the conversation, this sense that we were talking to somebody who knew everything, (laughs) who had been there from the start, and really had a lot to say about how the genre has grown, and um, where the genre was, and where it could be. So without further ado, here is our interview with Sandra Brown, and...
2: um, I don't know enjoyed as much as we did everyone
1: um well we are thrilled to have with us
0: sandra brown welcome sandra thank you very much sarah and jen i've looked forward to this
1: well we are we're super excited about blind tiger which is did I see correctly on in your Instagram it is your 73rd New York Times bestseller as of
0: as of uh, yesterday I found out that it will be on the uh, Times list a week from Sunday but we find out like 10 days before, you know. And uh, so, yeah, like last night we had a little celebration here because it's uh, officially my 73rd New York Times bestseller. Wow.
1: That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, that living the dream. <laughs> well,
0: thank you. I've, I've been very fortunate and all the people that I've worked with and uh, my fans have followed me from, you know, one genre to another, one type of book, to another shorter books to longer books and blind tiger was the longest book I've ever written oh so, interesting uh, yeah so it and in itself it was so different because I kind of switched you know time periods I went back 100 years <laughs> so um, it, that was a kind of a you know leap of faith and a, a trust that my readers would follow me and so I'm pleased to say so far it looks like as though they are.
2: So what was it like to go back and do research for a historical again, especially in 1920, which is, you know, you've never, I mean, you wrote historical historicals in romance, but to have 1920 be the year.
0: It was uh, it was hard, uh, actually. But the reason I did is because when it got time last year uh, to begin my next book, I thought, how do you write a book where people are wearing masks and the news was so bad every night? And I hated even watching the evening news because it always left me so depressed and in a bad mood. And I, I thought, you know, I, I want some escape. And I figured if I felt that way, that readers would feel that way. So I thought, what was happening 100 years ago and lo and behold, things were all that
1: different. <laughs> I was going to say, so you went back to a different pandemic. Right,
0: a different <laughs> pandemic. There was another women's movement that resulted, mm-hmm. thankfully, in suffrage. Uh, soldiers were coming home from a very unpopular foreign war with post traumatic stress, but they didn't even know the name have of it. have a name for right, that, right. At that point in time. And um, as if things aren't bad enough, nobody could drive, buy a drink because <laughs> the Prohibition had gone into effect January 16th of 1920. So then I did, um, I, I just researched what was happening, Prohibition in Texas, which is where I live, and who knew, but like 50 oh, miles down the road from where I have lived most of my life, was a town that was nicknamed the Moonshine Capital of Texas, <laughs> and I thought, I thought perfect. Little Glen Rose, you know, had all these body houses and speakeasies and lots of moonshining because geographically it was perfect for it. And um, so I started doing research on that. And the more I got into it, the more fun I started having. But Jen, you asked me about the research. It was so fun in one way, but in another way, it was very time consuming because I would have to stop and look everything up. You know, it was like, Mm -hmm. uh, and at one point in time, I said Laurel, my heroine, uh, floorboarded her Model T. Well, yeah, she yeah. drove a 1915 Model T. So after I'd written that scene and I went back, thought, better do some deeper research
1: on how to drive a Model I'm T. because someone is going to email you <laughs> about this car. About this, yeah.
0: <laughs> and so lo and behold, a Model T 1915 model had three pedals on the floor. One was the clutch on the left. In the middle was reverse. On the right was the brake. The accelerator was on the steering wheel. So oh. you actually controlled your velocity, your speed by levers on how much, you know, gas you gave it was controlled by a lever on the steering wheel. So I could have made that really terrible mistake had mm-hmm. I not gone back and checked that, that out research. Again. So I couldn't <laughs> say that she foreboded it.
2: <laughs> My dad lives in Florida and we went to visit, I think it's like Edison's Florida home. And he, there's a huge collection of Model Ts there. Really? And I, the whole time I was reading this book was really thinking like, I wonder what it would be like if these moonshiners had access to, you know, like a Ford F-150 instead, <laughs> because <laughs> these things, I mean, they really are small. I mean, it's, it's really kind of a miraculous to think about. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems so big and fast to them, but you know,
0: to well, us. one thing uh, they did, and this was also interesting, Ford would sell the chassis, the main chassis, but people would adapt, like before they started making pickup trucks per se, people would add beds onto their the Model T and kind of customize them. So customizing your automobile is not a new science um, that we figured out at this, day, uh, this century. They were already doing it. And uh, so they were very innovative even before uh, Ford started manufacturing all these things. So all of these little facts, you know, came out. And then the the part about moonshining was really fun um, to research because most of the stories, the tales that people had to tell, I would just laugh out loud because you could be like, you can't make this up. I mean, it was wild. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the speed with which they had their cars to go, that's where NASCAR started was wow. because the moon, that's right. It's where NASCARs came to be because moonshiners would soup up their engines to outrun the cars that lawmen had. And that's where NASCAR was born in the Carolinas, actually. But uh, yeah, so all of this was just fun. You know, it was, uh, it was a, a fun departure. And I think from a creative standpoint, uh, it's good for writers to try something different, to uh, go at a different pace. Um, I've always, throughout my career, just spanned 40 years now, uh, but just to try something different, to challenge myself. And I think um the the worst thing that a writer can do is become complacent and, and uh, just rely on, you know, their history um, in the marketplace because the market is constantly changing. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a evolution every day. And um, it's a learning curve every day. So in order to keep up uh, and to, to remain vital in the marketplace, I think it's good for writers to challenge themselves, say, i never tried this, you know, wonder if I can do that. And at the same time, maintain the expectations of their readers, you know. So I think Blind Tiger, yes, it's set in another century. And, um, and yes, had to do a lot of research on historical facts. But the bottom line is it still has, I, I believe, the trademarks of a Sandra Brown novel that when one opens it and starts reading, they, they more or less know that it's still a Sandra Brown novel.
1: Oh, a thousand percent. We were talking about that before, um, the interview that we just, I mean, it just, I felt like I just fell right into it to the Sandra Brown world. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this, and you've obviously been writing, you've written historicals before. This is not your first historical, um, people who listen to of Mates know that. And, um, one of the things that that I think about a lot as a historical writer is we tend to be judged. There's often a sense in the world that, oh, well, when you're writing historicals, you're just writing, you're closing the door on current day and just writing the past. And I mean, we know that's not true. And one of the things that really echoed for me in this book was how current it felt in the sense of as you said, a hero coming home from war, the Spanish flu, these kind of large-scale things that felt so, it's almost impossible to read the the pieces where, because Thatcher, our hero, has had the Spanish flu. Um, and it's impossible to read that without thinking, oh my gosh, we're, yeah. we're doing that now. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how Mott Ma- how modern the book is too, in that, in that sense, how are you thinking about the world that way?
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for that. But that's how I made my pitch to the end. <laughs> well, <it worked. laughs> I said, guess what? Uh, I want to do a historical, you know, and it kind of took him aback and uh, cause he's only edited uh, my contemporary, you know, thrillers or suspense novels. And um, he said, well, but, like where to? <laughs> where are you going? Right. And so, what are you I doing, started, Sandra? I started drawing for him all of the parallels that we've talked about, and I said, "And when you really get down to it, I said uh, Shakespeare would have made the same pitch to his editors because <laughs> the human condition does not change; it hasn't for millennia, you know, and so." When you when you start talking about human emotions, they're all still there: greed, lust, jealousy, rage. You know, sorrow, grief. All of these things are still identifiable by every human being. And so, I think if you if you tell a story correctly, and if you if you reveal to your characters. Um, the, the emotions, uh, uh, you know, to your readers, the emotions of the characters, then they're going to relate to that. Because if you have something, if you lose someone dear to you, beloved to you, you're going to feel the same thing that someone did hundreds of years ago. You know, it's it, that hasn't changed the human heart. Has not changed, and um, and so even though our devices certainly have, uh, and I can't tell you what a relief it was to write a book without everybody. <laughs> <having the laughs> <cell phone. laughs> I bet, I bet, <laughs> because I think technology in some ways has ruined suspense because you can't make people disappear as easily as sure you. Were. Uh, but in answer to your question, uh, Sarah, the the Emotions, human emotions, um, if you tell a, a story well and you really explore the mind and the heart of your characters, then the story should be relatable no matter where it's and what time period. And so I wouldn't give too much credence to someone who says, well, you're leaving contemporary life behind because when you, when you, you know, strip it all away, we're people and we've been people for a long time (laughs) and we've experienced the same emotions at one point in our lives or another.
2: Okay, so Sarah, my my dad was a soldier in Vietnam. And one of the things Sarah and I have talked about sort of over and over again, and I joke that if I ever got like a PhD in romance, it would be about like the the Vietnam hero returning home. Is a lot of your early romances, most of them, featured men who were who were who had been in Vietnam. And Thatcher is a man coming back from World War One. So is is this something that is of like particular interest to you or 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 do you, like me, sometimes think this is just, like, an American, I don't know, story? This, I mean, maybe it's a story everywhere, but a particularly American story about, like, a man coming home from war and not knowing where he fits in. I mean, Thatcher can't even afford to get home. They've taken his uniform from him. Um, and I was really fascinated to think about, like, that in parallel with some of your early romances.
0: Well, that and that's true. And I have to confess, I guess that's an accidental thing, Jen, because I don't really set out to make any kind of, you know, political statement. That's not my role. Um, I'm a fiction writer. I tell you know stories. Um, But it's interesting now that you mentioned it because I really, really hadn't thought of that. But I suppose because um, the Vietnam War was so you know, part of my development as, uh, you know, when I was in, well, I guess junior high, high school, college, and then early adulthood, um, I knew people that were lost, you know, in that war. And, you um, and it was so much of our culture and it was so much of a culture change in, in our country. So I guess in the background of my mind, that was omnipresent, didn't even recognize it. And it's interesting that you should say, because even recent books, um, the, the hero in Thickest Thieves is an ex-soldier. Um, there have been many who have served uh, the character in Lethal. Um uh, mm-hmm. uh what was his name? Oh dear, uh <laughs> Started with a C. Uh
2: 73 bestsellers later, you're gonna forget some <laughs> names, right? It's really fun. Okay, I mean, a little, have a little glitch every
0: now and then. Right. But, uh, uh yeah, and, and so that influenced, you know, his his character and how he was very, you know, tough and and cold toward the, the world and until he meets this little five-year-old girl who totally, you know, disassembles him. And so it's, um, I think in the back of my mind, possibly it's kind of that injured male, whether whether the injuries are physical or emotional or mental, um, it's kind of that, you know, the beast uh, that that by the end of the book is, more or less tamed but there's a reason for the way he that acts and i think that war and war experiences you know uh play into that in some regard but it's a subconscious thing i really never had thought about it till you mentioned it but now that you do i can see <laughs> Yeah, you know there's a pattern there <laughs> thanks for pointing that out
1: <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> It's interesting because I, as I was reading *Blind Tiger* I, and knowing we were going to have this conversation, I was thinking a lot about heroes in thrillers and mysteries versus heroes in romance, and how that sort of loner archetype really fits both both worlds. And and what you I think do so beautifully in all of your books is you you deliver your loner hero a community in in a lot of ways. And *Thatcher* for me feels like your romance roots kind of delivering delivering these thriller heroes a different kind of happiness at, or at the end, a different kind of satisfaction right. at the end. Yeah, But I also want to talk about your heroines because for me, a Sandra Brown heroine always has a purpose outside of That's
0: the hero. Player. And yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: that has, I mean, as a writer that has inspired, as a reader that inspired me, as a writer, there is, when I, I said on Twitter the other day that, you're one of the reasons why I write romance oh, and okay. and you are, I think your heroines have really kind of imprinted on me in a lot of ways the DNA of the Sandra Brown heroine of, you know, the heroine who is backed up against the wall. We love a hero, Jen and I love a heroine backed up against a wall. hundred percent Who ends up a bootlegger because that's of course that's the of avenue. Course. And also she's
2: super badass. The minute she learned to drive, I was like, but the whole part where she says to. I mean, there's a part, I wish I would have marked it, where she says, you know, once she decided this was her task, she was going to be the best at it. And I was like, there is
1: a Sandra, Brown, Sandra heroine. Brown heroine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I have to admit, when I first pitched the book uh, to my editor, and I, and I and it was going to be Thatcher's story. It was going to be his story. But once I started writing it, as my characters typically do... They they took over and um, it, the book actually turned out to be Laurel's story because uh, beyond not, you know, he, he changed careers from that of a cowboy. Um, and we see the potential in him early on to do more than just go back to the ranch, you know, and, and do that. And he would have been happy to do that for the rest of his life but um he didn't make when he when the book is is ended he's more or less the same individual that he was he still thinks the same way he still got that laconic uh cowboy uh, nature that code of honor that he lives by you know i'm not going to look for trouble but you don't mess with me or somebody i care about or you're going to be in trouble and so We get that early on, and we still feel that at the end of the book. Laurel is the one who has the character arc. It became Mm -hmm. her book when she said, You are teaching me how to drive. And her father in law starts sputtering and she says, Today. Today. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we weren't going to, and I thought, Huh she's kind of taken over this. And then yeah. I loved, you know, all of the things that she does, the uh, limbs that she goes out on. <laughs> so to oh. speak.
1: I mean, the whole operation being her brainchild, the
0: pies. And it's the- not just to survive now. It's not just to put food on the table. It's I'm going to thrive. And if I'm going to do, if I'm going to be a lawbreaker, I'm going to be the best. (laughs) And and, uh, of course, and and another element, um, which I believe was one of the questions that that you were going to ask me, what makes uh, a good romance and we can get to that. But one of the main elements um, is that they need to be forbidden to each other. And so in every Sandra Brown book that I've ever written, I've tried to make it, if he's a fireman, she's got to be an arsonist. (laughs) Um, For whatever reason, this cannot happen. They cannot Mm -hmm. possibly get together because they're on opposite sides of something. And in this instance, it was so obvious. You know, when I first started plotting it. And I thought, okay, can I really do that with a heroine? Can I really do that? And yeah, yes, Lowe yes, was like, <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, <laughs> hell yes. If you're going to write me, then I'm going to take over. And, and, she did. And, um, and, 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 uh, you know, I think every reader, I hope every reader, male and female, will admire her gutsiness, you know, they might Mm -hmm. not admire the enterprise, but they, I think they will admire and can identify with somebody who says, okay, I've been knocked down twice really hard. Um, and that doesn't even count her upbringing, her parents, you know, Mm -hmm. her, her domineering father. So she's, refusing um and resolved never to depend on anyone to take care of her again. And I think that is a a lesson in in what contemporary you know women in our society are learning uh, is that, you know, as much as you love somebody, um as kind as of someone is to you, you need to be able, because you don't know what fate is going to throw in your path. You need to be able to take care of take care yourself. Of Not depend on other people, anyone.
1: (laughs) It was a joy to read Blind Tiger um, and to return to to your books, um, to your historicals. I mean, I as an as a as an avowed, we did a podcast where I said it out loud as an another Dawn fan. <laughs> I was like, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> a dusty Texas. I'm ready. Yes. It's
0: um, so, uh, yes. so funny, a little uh, backstory on that. I wrote uh, Sunset Embrace mm-hmm. and I sent it in to um, my editor at the time. They were published by Bantam. And I. Uh, my editor at the time after, you know, a month or so had gone by and the book was in production. And she called me one day and she said, the ladies here in the office um, have a request. <laughs> and I thought, you know, signing books for their aunts, you know, their grandmothers, <laughs> their, their moms. And she said, they want you to write another book and and make Bubba um, the hero. And I went. Ah, well, let me see what I can do. And, <laughs> the
2: ladies uh, in the office always know. <laughs> <laughs> they know.
0: <laughs> and so I, I set out to plot uh, Another Dawn, and, uh, and it was difficult um, because I, bet. I had to age him 10 years because in Sons and Embrace, it was really kind of a coming of age book for him. So I had to age him 10 years, and I thought, do I really want a hero named Baba? I think I'm going to have to give him a name. And um, so I I did that, and then thinking of, um, you know, the the plot, and the plot broke my heart, actually. And I think it broke the heart of a lot of readers, but it was essential to his and Banner's book. You know uh, the the plot development there. So anyway, um, thank you for the compliment. And I love those books because I love cowboys. I'm from Texas. I'm a sucker for cowboys, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as Thatcher (laughs) as Thatcher is. You know, Uh, I loved his bow legged walk and Mm -hmm. and his Mm -hmm. cowboy hat and his spurs and
1: (laughs) all of that. (laughs) Same, same, everything. Um. Well. I would love to hear your about your journey into romance because you know we've talked on the podcast about how you were really there at the start of Harlequin American with Vivian Stevens. We talked about Tomorrow's Promise on the podcast. So, love swept. Yeah, the early love swept books. So, um I wonder if you could sort of give us a sense of paint us a picture of those early years and how you became a romance writer.
0: My first five uh, books were for Vivian Stevens in another house in another line. It was called Ecstasy, and it was published by Bantam Doubleday Dell. And how all of that happened, first of all, I got fired from my job. Uh, and I, I was working in television for the ABC affiliate here in Dallas, and I um, they came through one day and fired all of us who were on air contributors to this magazine show. They said, well, they needed fresh faces. So God bless my husband, uh, who's still my husband. <laughs> uh, he, he's put up with me all these years. Um, but he, he said, you know, you've always said you want to write fiction and now you've got time and opportunity, uh, you know, to do it. And I had two babies at home. I mean, I, they were toddlers, my children, And, um, I said, gosh, but you know, I don't know how to, I don't know how to do that. And he said, you don't, you won't know if you don't try and you can either keep talking about it or you can do it. So I sat down and proceeded to start writing and he had a talk show. This is a long story, but anyway, he had a talk show in the morning. He interviewed all the authors who came in on tour so one was a local woman who wrote romances. Her name was Paris Afton Bonds. And so oh, sure. she, um, she volunteered as a favor for him having her on his show to read one of my manuscripts. And she said, you ought to be writing romances. And I was like, what's a, what's a romance? I didn't know, you know, <laughs> one. And she said, well, like a harlequin romance. And that Harlequin was the only show in town. And they were, of course, a British company. So most of their writers are British. But I went, bought 12 or 15 of them, started reading them. I thought, yeah, I I think I could do this. So I proceeded to, and Paris invited me to go with her to Houston to a writer's conference. Oh my gosh. And there I met a woman named Candace Camp. Oh my gosh. I'm quarters. like, of course. had first published The Rainbow Season. And that was one of the best books I had ever read. And I loved it. And I couldn't speak when I met Candace. I, Candy, I called her. I was just like, oh. and she wrote that book under a pseudonym, Lisa Gregory. And um, so I met Her at that cocktail party and also at the cocktail party, I met a woman from a small East Texas town who had a bookstore, Mary Lynn Baxter, who later wrote for Silhouette. And she said, well, I've read everything ever written. And I have the ear (laughs) of every uh, uh, editor in New York. So when you get a manuscript you like, send it to me and I'll read it and I'll tell you whether or not it's any good. So about three months later, she had given me her phone number. Three months later, I called her and I said, do you remember meeting me? And, da, 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 and yes, what are you written? And I said, well, I'm going to send you something. And she called me a few days later and said, this is exactly what a woman named Vivian Stevens is looking for, for a new line of romance. It's called Ecstasy. Oh,
1: my gosh. I have shivers. Okay. I know this is the greatest story. Keep going. Sorry. Do you have five or six hours to stay with
0: <laughs> us? Vivian <laughs> bought my first book and two, about two weeks later. And then 13 days, uh, she said, do you have another one? And I said, yeah, I'm I'm finishing it up. And she said, well, Cindy, is it same orientation? And I said, yeah, same level of heat. And I said, yeah. So she... I sent it to her and she bought my second book 13 days after the first one. So it's sold my first two. And then she bought the next three and then she moved to Harlequin and that's when she she bought Tomorrow's Promise. And so by then, by then, at that point in time, every publisher was developing their own Line. Uh, yeah. Jove had a line called Second Chance, and uh, I later wrote for for them. Um, Silhouette had a line. Um, Pocket had a line called Silhouette, and then Silhouette Desire, and then what was the. Other? Anyway, ultimately, I was writing for four different houses under four different names, including my own.
1: The pseudonyms. I'd love to talk a little bit about that because was was it four different houses under four different names? Because each house wanted a different right, name.
0: Right. And, and okay. uh, my first pseudonym was for Vivian for the ecstasy line. And I used Rachel Bryan because those are my children's names. Oh, okay. And it was a bribe. Oh. Uh, if you let mommy work <laughs> and leave me alone, <laughs> that's awesome. we'll go get ice cream and I'll put your name on every page of the book. And so <laughs> that's... <laughs> oh, my gosh. Perfect. And, for, and then I also thought Rachel Ryan sounded a whole lot more like a romance writer than Sandra Brown. But when I started writing for Carolyn Nichols for the Love Swept Line, um, Carolyn wanted to, instead of featuring the series or making the series, the selling point, she wanted the authors to be more spotlighted. She wanted the authors to be the prominent name. um, And, Develop the trademark, of course, but also to really emphasize the individuality of the authors and so uh, I, she said, "I want to use your your real name and i said it 's about time to you know yeah. <laughs> that, that idea um, so that's that's the that 's the history so as
1: we 're talking about that question, I mean, I feel you you must know what 's coming, but the, <laughs> the love swept line and and them wanting readers to know authors. Can we talk about this, which is that Rana look?
0: You mentioned that to me. I had
1: forgotten that. I I (laughs) love, first of all, I love that you have forgotten this.
2: Imagine being so cool that you forgot that you were your own cover model.
1: That's all I have to say about
0: that. And we have lots of serious questions too. And you said, how did that come about? And honest and truthfully, I cannot remember. I just remember being asked.
1: And I don't think you were alone because I think Nora Roberts was also on one around the same time. I feel like they they did this with a few people. There were a couple
2: people, I think. There was another one. I can't remember the name, though. Beautiful writer. She's <laughs> got,
0: got to play models. My, my hair. Has never been that long. <laughs> I was going to say, is this your actual hair? <laughs> no. And I never had a dress that gorgeous either. So, <laughs> what I think they did, I think what they did is take our picture in that pose. And then they had, you know, the, the painting done. And it was a really pretty good rendition of it's beautiful. my face, but I didn't have the, the hair the and the flowing hair locks. <laughs>
1: And um, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but this is McLean Steph- Stevenson from Mash, right? And uh-huh. yeah. did you get to pick? Was he a favorite, or <laughs> were they just like, sorry, Sandra, you're gonna have to be our with local this hottie, guy. <laughs> yeah, right?
0: <laughs> I don't know who, I don't know how he got selected either. He, his, totally he needed the
1: press. press. He needed to hang out with you. He <laughs> needed the glow up of Sandra Brown. So going back to those kind of early days, because we always think about that as like, it must have felt a little like there was an explosion of popularity. Because prior to that, it was so historic. You know, we know that in the 70s, it was, you know, big historical times. But this is really the burst of contemporary romance. Yes. And did, you, did it feel like it to you? Did you feel like you were on the precipice of something?
0: Yes, in a way, because, uh, as I said, all of it, up to that point in time, Harlequin um, published in London and in Toronto. And, and they had, I think, the first American author that they bought was Janet Daly. And I could be wrong on that, but I think that's right. And so it was like, well, duh, you've got a whole continent right <laughs> over here of, of, um, of women writers yet untapped. And, um, and then, so it was, it was like, uh, and the, and the competition among the houses, this is a great time to be starting. I, I've often said that, um, I hit it at exactly the right moment in time, um, because it was the competition among the houses to sew up, you know, the Nora Roberts, the Jane Ann Krentz, the Barbara Delinsky, the, uh, Sandra uh Brown. <laughs> I, could, I could go on and on and on all the writers that, you know, came up, um, out of this. And so, um, it was it was very competitive among the houses to to publish quickly. Well, I wrote like a frenzy all the time. I mean was I was gonna say must have been. when my kids got old enough to go to um, kindergarten and they were in school because it was like I get to write without and, and so that I think the year 1983. Three, I think. Which, oh gosh, that sounds so long ago. It was so <laughs> long ago, but um, I think I had eleven books published. Wow! I think yeah. that That's... I had one a month, except for one month, and um, and so it was a juggling act. It was like, and each, you know, each line, whether it was silhouette, um, love swept, second chance, uh, the American Harlequins. Um, whether each line had nuances that were uniquely theirs there was just Mm -hmm. something you know a little bit different and uh so I would tailor a story if I if I thought of a plot I would kind of tailor the story oh that would make a good desire or oh that would make a good you know love sweat And then there were some um, differences in the length. So if a story was going to be a little bit longer, you know, I would, I would tailor it, but it was a kind of a juggling act. And I have to, to say uh, one lesson I learned um, early on is I didn't talk about my business with anybody. Um, What I wouldn't, share anything that I had spoken about with one editor with another. I kept very Uh close counsel um, and, um, and I wound up on speaking terms with everybody with whom I've ever worked. (laughs) And I think one reason (laughs) was because I didn't discuss my business nor anyone else's with, you know, with anyone. So that might be a a word of advice for, (laughs) for a starting author, you know, hold your cards close to your best and, and concentrate on your business and nobody else.
2: One of the things that's really interesting is you were just talking about how like fertile a time it was for authors. But this is when I, Sarah and I both kind of came up reading at this time. I mean, we were young. It's fine. It doesn't <laughs> matter. We were
1: barely even born. It doesn't matter. We
2: were... <laughs> <laughs> Reading romances when we were ten, and I don't. I'm not sad about it, but I also think this was an incredibly then fertile time to come up as a romance reader. So, can you at all? Are there? Do you have stories? Do you get letters from fans? These books mean something to people.
0: Yeah, uh, and it's so humbling. It really is. Um, but before <laughs> we had email and and social media. Um, you know, fan letters, I would collect them uh, from the mailbox. uh, And, uh, and I would dedicate, you know, like one day a month to answer, you know, by hand, um, all of these letters, and it, it took a lot of time. But right now, social media takes a lot of time. So, you know, but I was always so touched by the stories that people would tell me about how my story affected them. And to this day, it's it's really humbling and, and um, gratifying uh, and validating because I can bang my head against the wall, think nobody is going to read this crap. <laughs> you know, this is just you know, this is just another uh, you know, trying to get it right. And I struggle with that. I struggle with the insecurity of I'll never write another you know sentence again. Uh, every day I do that, but when you get a letter that says this touched me at such a, a needful time in my life, whatever it is a, an illness, the loss of a partner or child, or you know, something really tragic, and they say your books just saved me through this, and uh, and that's when it's like, you know, if that one person is the only person who took something from that labor that I put, then it was worth it. You know, it makes those long hours and days at the keyboard really and truly worthwhile.
1: We'll get to the shift, the, the way that you moved from romance, um, to thrillers, but I'm, I'm curious, particularly about readers and the separate genres, because it often feels when, you know, when I'm at events or, you know, when Jen is at events, it often feels like people always say, oh, romance is, totally different than everyone else. You know, thriller, thriller, the thriller audience isn't like this. It doesn't become as personal. Do you, have you had that experience or because you're sort of still Sandra Brown and the book still feels Sandra Brownie, do you still get the, the feedback? Uh, so some, sometimes feedback?
0: from, from really dumb people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I, if someone says, well, I don't read those kinds of books. And I said, well, have you ever read one? No. Well, then how do you know what kind it is? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, but I, I, I'm, I'm more, um, I'm less sensitive to it than I once was because um, then in the same breath, they'll say, gosh, but it must be really, you know, how do you write a book? And I'll go, yeah, that's, that's kind of tricky. (laughs) <laughs> you know, if it's easy. Everybody would be doing it because the writer's yeah. life is a great yeah. life. You know, so um, I I, I kind of dismiss that anymore. You know, and um, but because I know how hard it is, and uh, my husband knows how hard it is, and my children and grandchildren know. How yeah, it is, <laughs> and my colleagues that I care about deeply know how hard it is. And we commiserate, uh, Sarah, you know how hard it is. And so it's it's really, I, I just, I don't bother with that anymore. And also I fall back on a book that really inspired me. And I thought, you know what? You can combine thrillers and sex. And the book that did that for me was Eye of the Needle by Ken Follett.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That was one of the sexiest books because you talk about forbidden and you talk about the isolation, which I always try to um, build. You, you said you bring your character into a community and form a community around that character. It's very insightful of, of you um because i do try to create a world where the rest of the world is kind of just disappeared it's it's that world and the characters it's a microcosm they have good people bad people um but their lives are are really uninfluenced by much that's going on it's it's within that type community that they're orbiting, and so when I read Eye of the Needle, I thought, "Here they are! It's got all the elements I loved. They're alone on this island. They that nobody knows where. You know, the communication is gone. The weather is prohibitive. They're they're forbidden to each other, and yet that allure." <laughs> you know, just that allure. Mm. And of course he's a, an assassin. He's a horrible person, but the love We're for me is just, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just great. And so I thought now if somebody like Ken Follett can do this, <laughs> then what if you, what if you I did? can <laughs> I do this? And, um, and so that, that book, um, really influenced me a lot in terms of you can mix, You can mix the two and it has to be, you know, integrated into the story. And when people are running for their lives, it's a little bit impractical and implausible to think, oh, time out. We've got to have sex, you know? So
2: (laughs) we have a name for that, Sandra, the danger bang,
1: but
0: (laughs) term
1: before. You're welcome. (laughs) It's yours now.
0: Here's the the thing. uh, And I've done, you know, questionnaires and things on this before and asked, did you realize you were creating a a genre, helping create a genre? No, no, it was, it was a subconscious thing. and, And I'm given far more credit than I deserve because, I read um, Helen McGinnis, I read Evelyn Anthony, I read all of these writers, again, mostly British, who were writing basically uh, books during the Cold War. It was after World War II, but still that that influence, uh, you know, the Nazis, the spies, the all of that, and and they had wonderful, sexy books. Especially uh, Evelyn Anthony was a big influence on me. Her books were amazing, and um, and the tension because here again the forbidden. Um, and so I uh, I really get a, a more credit than I deserve because I felt like I borrowed, you know, so much from from them from other writers and from my contemporaries. So I think there were several of us who saw, hey, we have romance roots, but we still love the mystery. We still love the suspense. We still love wartime books or we still love, you know, spy novels. And so it, it the way I felt about it was that the attraction heightens both elements of the story because you're never more afraid than when someone you care about is in danger, even more than yourself. So it heightens that suspense. It heightens, please don't let anything happen. And it heightens the urgency. If this is going to be the only time we have, then we're going to make the most of it. So it heightens both elements. It heightens the, the, um, the relationship and it heightens the danger because they work against each other with each other.
1: As you're talking about this community of these other writers who were doing it at the same time as you, because there were, it it felt like something broke, um, meaning the time, uh, you know, the tide broke and suddenly there was romantic suspense kind of everywhere in the genre. Did you have a community of other writers who were doing the same thing Who were the members of that community?
0: Well, I have to say, I have to give credit to international thriller writers. Um, I was asked very early on, uh, Gail Lins asked me, uh, and David Morrell, who I I didn't know at the time, um, Lee Child, some of these were saying, would you like to become part of this, inter- we're going to form a, a, you know, league of writers called International Thriller Writers. And we're breaking barriers. I mean, it was like, we want it to incorporate mystery. We want it to incorporate suspense. It can incorporate fantasy. It can incorporate romance. But every book should be a thriller no matter what book you're writing, it should thrill your readers. So they were very democratic, you know, in in this, this organization. And I think they possibly as much, if not more, went out of their way to include writers from another genre that wasn't so steeped in um, you know espionage or so you mm-hmm. know which would call the mind thriller. They had horror writers they had you know it was it was everybody and um, and so I really have to credit that organization a lot with with bringing everybody in and recognizing the contribution that women writers, had made to the marketplace, right. and and they yeah. were they were really a fundamental um, group that that brought to the publishers' attention. Hey, we got all these great writers over here, and guess what? You know, they're women. Yeah. <laughs> what <a> concept? <laughs>
2: <laughs> when you look back on your career, like, is it is there a book that you can point to where you thought, oh, I've seen I'm feeling my direction change and I'm moving away from straight romance. Or was it just really like a smooth continuum for you? There's not like a slow heat in heaven was the one or whatever.
0: Yeah. Well, it was slow (sighs) heat in heaven.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There it is. (laughs) That's the one we hear about all the time. yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, it's the book you hear about when somebody says "Sandra Brown." Was, no. a, if you're not us, us going a, another dawn tomorrow's problem. <laughs> <It was laughs> kind Texas of Chase. a
0: breakthrough. Um, for me, but um, apparently for a lot of romance readers, you know, it was like, "What happened to that nice girl we used to know?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: it was so gritty. Oh, right. I can still remember where I was when I read <laughs> *Heaven*. I was in my <laughs> sister's too. apartment in Waltham, Massachusetts, oh, sleeping on an air
0: mattress, uh, and there I was. I've been to yeah. Waltham, Massachusetts, <laughs> but uh, anyway. I remember um, I had finished the Texas Trilogy, Lucky, Chase, and Sage, who were the most, they were the most fun books I'd ever written. And they are in their 45th printing domestically. Um, and so they have resonated with a lot of readers. And I loved those characters and they were so much fun. And I think I only wrote one other love sweat, uh after that. And then I had signed a contract with, um, uh, it was Warner books, um, at the time. And, um, they, I, I had kind of gotten to where I was like, you know, I've got to stretch. I've got to do, I, I had written like 45 romances Mm -hmm. and I thought I really want to kind of get past these boundaries that, you know, now anything goes. But back then it was like, you know, you can't do this. You can't do gunplay. You can't, you know, language had to be controlled and there were certain plots. I was, as I said, always giving my editors heart attacks because they were going Sandra and you know, one of the characters in Texas trilogy, the plot, she was married. And when I told my editor I was going to do that, well, when I told my editor, who's Carolyn Nichols, and when I told her, I said, I want to do these books from the male point of view. And she said, Well, you can't do that. And I said, uh-huh. Well, you kind of can.
1: <laughs> I let, let me show, you.
0: <laughs> I said, let me show They're, you. They're thinking such wonderful old things. I think this would be, and I want to make them longer. And I will throw in a third book. I'll give you a a woman point of view. I'll give them a bratty younger sister. And so that's where that came about. And that's
1: so fascinating. I mean, that changed the game. I had
0: to fight for that. And when I told her that the heroine, you know, in Lucky was going to be married, she said, your readers will never forgive you if you use, a if you, Have an adulteress, you know, and I go, (laughs) Carolyn, how many books have I written for you? (laughs) You're just going to have to go out on a leap of faith on this. And uh, so, you know, made it that way. But when I, after I finished all those romances, I thought I want to do something where I don't have any kind of parameter I'm having to stay within, no borders, no fences. So I signed this book with uh, this deal with Warner to write a standalone novel. And it was slow heat in heaven. What became slow heat in heaven. And from the get go, I loved Cash Feed Row. And I said, same, obviously. (laughs) I said, this is going to be the Sandra Brown hero. It's the one that needs redeeming.
1: (laughs) And did you know in the moment, were you like, Oh, I knew I was writing the book. The
0: minute he, the minute he showed up with that hoe across his uh, <laughs> and his yes. hands, and, <laughs> and thought, his hands relaxed, <laughs> and then he kills the snake. And I thought, this is the Sandra Brown hero, and it's the one that you know needs love. That needs to be loved. That's hardened by life and needs. Poor to be loved. baby,
1: yeah. poor baby. Also, someone else kills a snake. Satra kills say. a snake too. So
2: you're <laughs> you're going back to your roots. You might not know, but we do. <laughs> we're
1: we're we're paying close attention here.
0: But I uh, I thought it the minute he walked on the page, and and a lot of people, you know, it 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 took them so aback, you know, the sexuality was a whole lot more graphic and everything. Mm -hmm. But I remember you had Susan Elizabeth Phillips on.
2: Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: And I definitely remember a, uh, I guess it was Romance Writers of America, some writers conference where she and I were, were both attending. And I think that's the first time I met her. I think it was, maybe not, but anyway, we were both there and we were very friendly, love her, still love her, starling lady. And, um, and she was making a speech at lunch. She was like the keynote speaker. And she was going on about, she said, we as writers have to be fearless. We have to be fearless. We can't be um, inhibited by our own, you know, uh, timidity. And uh, that was her point. And, you know, be fearless. She said, "I have a post-it note on my computer screen. Be fearless. You know, take the chance." And she said, "Sandra Brown." <laughs> <laughs> she called you out. Yep. My strawberry shortcake dessert. You know, <laughs> and uh, she said she shocked us all with slow heat in heaven. And she said, romance readers all over the country were saying, oh, how dare she? And she said they couldn't get enough of it. <laughs> how dare she? Can I have some more? Yeah. And so she said, and and it was, it was kind of a, it was definitely a turning point in my career, but it was also a book that as you both have mentioned um, kind of put readers back on their heels and went, what? I didn't know you could do this, you know? It and felt
1: different. I it mean, did, it, it was know. different. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because you brought up the Texas trilogy. And I feel like in Texas Chase, which we've done a deep, we did a deep dive episode on. so yeah, We read that. it and thought <laughs> about it. You were moving into romantic suspense there too. There's a whole stalker. Yeah. Mm-hmm, a thread line yeah. through that book. And, and, it's it's clear that that was the path you were on even before. Yeah, I,
0: I, I never felt like I deserted um, the romance genre. I felt like I learned so much from writing the romances. First of all, when they were, uh, when your page count was dictated, um, you know, you had to be, I had to learn to get into the the action immediately joined the scene in progress. Um, and that didn't come with the first several books. I spent a lot of time, you know, tiptoeing through the tulips and describing everything and showing off to the reader how much research I'd done about a place. That they, and really, what they wanted to know was when are they going to meet? What, you know, what's going <laughs> on? So, <laughs> when are they going to kiss? You know, I was learning as this I. feels very real. <laughs> and I got better at it. But little tools like that, that you, I had to learn when writing romance, um, I brought with me. I don't feel like I deserted anything, and as you say, the books always had shadings. I remember even my fourth book, A Treasure Worth Seeking, was about, uh, uh, an FBI agent having to move into the heroine's apartment because her brother has escaped jail or something like that, and they're, kind of hiding out, hoping he's going to show up. So there was always that, that thread Mm -hmm. in there.
1: Always an edge. So you, you moved to Warner to publish Slow Heat in Heaven. And so I guess my question is, did you move to Warner because you knew Warner would let you do something that maybe romance wouldn't let you do?
0: My agent kind of threw the, uh, the, the idea out there and, and they were the first to, you know, to really bite. And I, I think I did a three book contract and, um, my first one and the first two books, Slow Heat and, um, Best Kept Secret had, Best Kept Secret had a terrible cover on it. And, uh, <laughs> We had a meeting <laughs> and I said, OK, um, and, and what they had suggested is that if I was going to establish myself as a, you know, more suspense, more mystery, then perhaps I would rethink writing category romances. And that was a tough that was a it was uh that was tough to leave that safety net. Then it was, you know, on the high trapeze with that one. And I couldn't, you know, I, I had to make up my mind and I thought, yeah, this is where I want to go. So that was a career decision. So we had this meeting and it, it, it was so it looked like a historical uh, Recycle a uh, cover that had been recycled from historical because you've got the heroin lying back with the bosoms falling out and the, <laughs> the, 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 you know, the shirtless hero with the biceps and everything and so, and I said this is a set on a horse training ranch. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? I haven't seen anybody in West Texas who dresses like this. <laughs> And so I said, no more bosoms and biceps. I said, if, if you're going to ask me to kind of start edging away from the romance elements into more mystery and suspense, then you've got to give me covers, that also indicate you have to help me succeed. That's exactly right. And so on mirror image, they did a completely different type of cover. And guess what? It was my first book on the New York times bestseller list. So I made my point. And from then on, I didn't have to, you know, uh, fight for it. I had a little bit more pull.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Was there any discussion of changing your name?
0: No, no. no. I wanted to publish under Sandra Brown. Yeah, Yeah, that's
1: great. Um, You hear other people having to, you know, make that switch. It still is a thing that people say in romance. You know, well, if you want to write something else, you need to change your name.
0: I'm just going to tell everybody. No,
1: it's Sandra. Sandra Brown. Sandra Brown didn't didn't either. You shouldn't have to either.
0: (laughs) And that's also my real name. <laughs> that helps
1: too. So let's talk about Sandra Brown because we've already talked about, you know, what makes a Sandra Brown romance a little bit, but what do you think kind of is the hallmark of a Sandra Brown romance? What do you think saying to readers?
0: Well, I uh, I don't know about the saying to readers, but I had a I worked this out over time. I have four elements to me that are critical in in every book and I've carried it over into the suspense novels but the romance aspect of that. The first one is that the hero and the heroine must be codependent to solve their problem. In other words they share a problem that each has to try and overcome. They're coming at it from different angles and unwillingly they have to work together in order to solve it. That's the first thing. So build in, if I can, a problem they're going to share, and they they're dependent on each other. Not liking it at first, but that's the way it is. The second thing is they've got to share space, and this is the hardest thing to do, because you've got to keep them together, and um, and that. That you know, all of the peripheral characters in Blind Tiger were a lot of people, but I tried as much as possible. Even though Thatcher and Laurel were not living with each other, he kept showing up. <laughs> he, he was <laughs> always showing up. I love, it. And, I love uh, it. and so I I kept them together as much as possible. But in a romance novel, I think it's almost essential that they're on every page together. The desire is a given. It's going to be chemistry from the get-go. First time they see each other, sparks are going to fly, even though they don't demonstrate it. Sparks can fly in anger, but there's going to be that static electricity, you know, automatically. So that's a given. And then the one that we've touched on in this, I think, is as important as any, if not the, it can't be easy. They've got to be forbidden. For one reason or another. So you've got then a problem they've got to solve together. You've got them to share space. They're gonna have the desire, but they can't give in to it. <laughs> so I
1: was say, this, this explains it,
2: everything right? about the kind of romance reader. I mean, it's just hardwired right into my system. <laughs> Cause I say that a lot. A thing I struggle with, I think, in modern romance is they aren't trying to solve the same problem. They have separate problems. Mm. And I'm always like, okay, but. I don't care. <laughs> what are they doing together? <laughs> and I know that makes me old fashioned maybe, but I don't care. Solve a problem together. That's what I want to see you do.
0: I think old fashioned works if it, you know, if it, um, if it's written correctly, um, it, a, a contemporary book by a contemporary writer and, and I read them and I love them, eat them up. Um, and I, as I said, the human emotions have not changed. <laughs> so, um, you know, we can, we can go back and we can read, you know, his books written hundreds of years ago at Dickens, Shakespeare, you know, Wilkie Collins, anybody. And those, those emotions are still there identified.
1: I would love to hear one of the questions we sent you and, and I think is so important for these, these interviews and for women in general in publishing is when did you know you were Sander Brown, right? When did you know you were a big deal? <laughs> you know, but was there a moment when you were like, oh, no, I'm a thing. I'm leaving a mark.
0: I, I can't wait for that day. <laughs> 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 because I still feel, uh, I mean, uh, very much a uh, yeoman. I mean, I am, I work. <laughs> Hard. And um, and every day when I come to this computer, it's it's like I've never done it before. I start from scratch every day, and so um, I don't. I don't think of Sandra Brown as Sandra, and in fact, my friends have heard me say before. My family has heard me say frequently. I've got to go be Sandra Brown today uh, right. because
1: right. a separate entity. Sure. It, it's
0: like you know, I don't fluff up every day, no. <laughs> <to work. laughs> and uh, and so it's it's like I still consider myself, uh, you know, just a someone who works very very hard and has been blessed with the opportunities that I have been given and um, and to be able to do what I love doing and and make a living at it and I know that a lot of people you know just take their jobs but they're necessary and I get to do what I love doing and and get to have a job out of it so I'm grateful every day and I never, um, I think the, you know, it, it's really bad for a writer to start reading the press releases because <laughs> when you start getting that <laughs> yeah. about you know what you are, you you can get really lazy. And so I face, um, I I've, I'm very paranoid and very fearful that whatever talent, not even like to use that word, um, but I guess that's the word that has to suffice. But whatever storytelling ability um, that I may have had our forming a sentence or creating a character, um, yesterday will have left me last night. And so, <laughs> you know, I live in a fear of, of being exposed as the biggest fraud that ever pulled off, you know, a hoax.
1: <laughs> that just sounds like you're a writer. Yeah. <laughs> <Sandra>. <laughs> this is all very comforting for me, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think we can, we, Jen and I will, will say, we will mm-hmm. say you are, Obviously, a legend to us. Well, and to many. thank you,
0: thank you. <laughs> that means a great deal, and I I love to um to hear other. I mean, you know, I'm buddies with a lot of other writers, and it it's uh, some are are you know very um, fearful the same way I am. Some are very you know laid back. Some think you know, gosh, you know, in this fun. And I remember being um, it it, it was actually. At George and Barbara Bush's home in Houston for a luncheon uh, at, for one of her the foundation's uh, literacy programs. And Harlan Cohen and I were there, and we had our spouses with us this lovely lunch. and so we were we were outside in their garden having our picture made with him, everything. and he, you know he's very, very tall. And um, he leaned down and he said, do you believe we get to do this? <laughs> and I said, you know, I, I pinch myself all the time. I mean, the, telling my stories, writing my stories um, has enabled me to do amazing things, meet sports stars and movie stars and rock stars and um, and go on two USO tours, an opportunity that would not have been afforded me That's had I not been you know, a writer. Um, And so I'm, I'm forever grateful, but yeah, I don't look at, you know, Sandra Brown, the mom is just mom. Believe me, Sandra Brown, the grandmother is just that, you know? Uh, And, and Sandra Brown, the one that goes to work every day is the different one that shows up to make a speech.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So as we wrap up though, one question that's, that I think it's just like a reflective question, and you've seen this in advance. Is um, when you think about your body of work, especially like romance, since this is a romance podcast, although you're welcome to talk about any one of your books, do you have a favorite? Do you have a book that you are especially proud of or that you hope will outlive you?
0: Uh, well, I make a, when I'm asked this in a public uh, speech, public arena, I always say my favorite. Is the one that you're about to buy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Good answer, great
0: answer.
1: But let's say you're asked for posterity.
0: <laughs> no, um, I think if uh, if I had to, well, of course, and this is not—I'm not being facetious on this. I was very proud of Blind Tiger uh, because it was a it was a different kind of book, and and I hope it has long legs. I hope it you know, lasts for a long time. I hope the word of mouth will spread because it is a different kind of story and it's kind of a yarn, you know, in a way. And, um, and I, I, I want people to read it. I thought there was some very interesting um, character development in it and social um, implications in it. And uh, so I'm proud of it. Um, a book that comes around a lot is Envy. Um people uh, there's a lot of um fan base that that say envy, you know, was was one uh, that I really loved. And so I think it might it might live a, a longer time. And I think the trilogy will, just because there's so much fun. And there's still not an ebook. I can't get them, uh, an ebook. And, um, because of, Oh
2: yeah. Cause we had to order, I had to like order paperbacks we had to read them when in we print. did
0: this. Yeah. Right. Wait, why can't they be an ebook? Well, it's, <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, it's all contractual stuff. Mm. Uh, and, uh, I hate that side of it, uh, because, you know, well, I could come in, but I'm, I'm sure, but the, the, uh, fine. you can come again when you're ready. Soon, <laughs> let's put it this way. As soon as it becomes feasible, uh, I, I would love to have them available to readers in ebook. Yeah. And, and they, I love people that read them, you know, the, in the whole volume, the one volume, because then they can read it like one, Read right yeah, it like one book. Page right. book,
1: yeah. I love. Th- I mean, this is such a tiny, tiny thing, but that exclamation point really <laughs> does a whole lot of work on this oh, You know what? I heard you comment on that. Uh, on <laughs> oh, did you hear me call them exclamation points? <laughs> <laughs> We're teaching you
2: all the good stuff. And I may,
0: be, <laughs> I may be wrong, but I think you attributed that to the publisher and that was me. <gasps> um, because well. I, I thought when, I, I, I can't just say Texas Trilogy because that doesn't say anything. And so I thought, what if I put an exclamation point? In? <laughs> and I did. And so when I sent the manuscript it's in, perfect. Uh, it is. I said, now the exclamation point is, yes. is part of the title and it's going to be on all of the books. So yeah, <laughs> it, that was my idea. We're going
1: to put, I'm going to put a special beginning on the text, that episode to make sure that we get this <laughs> correct. Cause we I get it right. Correct the record, but it's a. those exclamation points are glorious and I love them very
0: much. Oh, thank you.
1: So this is sort of a separate question that I I would love for you to answer, but is there anybody lesser known in romance who, from, you know, who you think as we're, Jen and I are planning to interview, you know, as many people as we can over the next few years for this kind of a conversation Are is there anybody who you absolutely think we have to talk to and not just authors, but.
0: I don't know who you have lined up. I think, um, the contemporaries of mine that I mentioned before, I think Jane Ann Krentz, uh, yeah. because she writes multi-genre hmm. and she does them all extremely well. Nora Roberts. Uh, well, of course. we'd love to get Nora Roberts, of course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and um, uh, Candace Camp, uh, because she has written contemporaries and historicals and she's been around more than 40 years, um, and still turning out great books. And so she would be one I would suggest because they, they do have that history, you know, they do have that longevity and, uh, and, and recently, not too recently, but someone asked me, what, what are you most proud of? Um, you know, and it can't be your children, and it can't be your long marriage, and it can't (laughs) be anything easy like that, but from a writing standpoint, from your, what's the thing you're most proud of? And I said, (laughs) my longevity. It's not easy to uh, maintain, and I respect authors like, you know, like the Dean Kunzes, and the Stephen Kings, and and they were all, they had all just started, you know, when just years, a few years ahead of me. And I read their works as inspiration when I first started out. And um, and Dean Kuntz is a great plotter. I mean, he just, and he wrote a book on how to write fiction. And it became my Bible early on. Um, so all of these writers... Who year after year and decade after decade are still on the bestseller list. I mean, that, that speaks well of not not just their talent but their work ethic.
2: Well, I also think it's nice as a as a genre reader to see people I deeply respect. Becoming more widely respected. I mean, when I was younger, Stephen King was just a horror writer, but now Stephen King is right. Stephen King. Yeah. yeah. And I think that there's a way in which um, I, I appreciate deeply this the idea that like great storytelling, it should and great writing is isn't just found in literary fiction, right? It's found in thrillers and horror and romance. And I think that that's one of the things that's so nice about seeing those people on those lists and seeing that longevity is there's readers now who read Sandra Brown that wouldn't read, you know, demon rum. And that's too bad, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. And, uh, and so I think there is, uh, sometimes there is a, a, um, prejudice there, you know, but, um, it, it 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 speaks well of a storyteller who can come up with that many stories and and over a period of decades. I mean, just decades, and and remain a a uh, marketable you know commodity to to publishing houses. And so I I'm I'm proud of that longevity. And it's work. I mean, it's just work. And it speaks not just to, you don't know, sit and wait to get inspired. You really have to put your butt in the chair, you know, and get your head out of the clouds and put words on paper. That's the only way I know how to do it. Uh, there's no other way that I know <laughs> to write a book except one word at a time. And um, I had another brilliant thought, now it's left me, but um, uh, back to the, you know, the longevity and just working at it, just working at it. And um, I never aspired to do Anything except entertain. I don't care if if uh, I win prizes, but my books are collecting dust, you know, on somebody's bookshelf. Um, I want to be the book they take to the beach, into the bathtub, uh, (laughs) you know, to bed with them at night that have the coffee stain, the Coca-Cola stain, the suntan oil, um, you know, they're, they're afraid from taking on the subway because, th- you know, that's the one you, you don't want to put down. That's the one you're carrying around with you. And that's the one that's keeping you engrossed. And so if I entertain, um, my reader, then I can go to sleep at night that I've done my job for the day. That's, that's the one thing that I always set out to do is entertain my reader. Tell the reader a story.
1: Well, you have done that's it very well. For okay. us. <laughs> thank, thank you, you so much. much for so many years of fabulous, fabulous. Well, thank music.
0: you. Y'all are so sweet. I feel very honored. Well,
1: on a personal level, like, thank you for inspiring m- I mean, you are the re- you are the reason I write romance. So it is a huge honor to talk to you. Oh, and well, and it we is. We just honor. learned that we have um, you have imprinted
2: on our on our reading. I was trying to be real <laughs> cool, but when you described you meeting Candace Camp, that was me meeting you. It's fine.
0: Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh. Sandra, this was an absolute delight. Thank you so much. Thank
0: you. It was my pleasure.
1: Man, when that was over, I was like, that's why that's Sandra Brown. That's why she's Sandra Brown. She was the best.
2: (laughs) I'm like, not even really making words. I'm surprised I did when we talked to her because I don't think people realize, like,
1: this was such a formative author. We were really, I mean, I think longtime listeners of us will not be surprised to hear that we were very stressed out. (laughs) Doing this right. <laughs> y- y'all, we prepared. We prepared. So, like, hard almost for too it. much. I was a little worried by how much we prepared. Yeah. I was like, uh oh. <laughs> what if we lose our mojo? But um, it was so great. I loved her. I loved just how she, I loved her, her wisdom. I loved that when she, when we asked her about the hallmarks of a Sandra Brown novel, she, she had a list. She knew exactly what she wanted, what she was. And she knew exactly how Sandra Brown novels feel. And I mean, the second she said, and they're pretty fearless, I was like, that's it. That's the whole ball game." And we've talked so much about that over the last three years. Not just about her, but about all the books that we've loved. Yes. Um, just that there's this sense of fearlessness in them. And so it just reminded me that as writers, our work is to swing for the fences. And maybe we clear them and maybe we don't, but you swing. We're going to talk a lot this year about—
2: uh, like the history of romance. And, you know, The Flame and the Flower was this like really important kind of marker. Um, I, I, but there's, you know, romance existed before in a lot of different iterations and a lot of different ways, but, you know, sort of genre romance. And the thing that I have been thinking a lot about is um, who's a romance reader you are is really formed by your primordial romance texts. And when Sandra Brown talked about what made, a, what makes a Sandra Brown romance, it was so, it was like, this is what is romance is to me. Yeah, it's like she unpeeled you right. straight to your and core. It's right there. She made me who I was. <laughs> but I think the other thing that's really interesting is is that can be true at the same time that I can see how romance has really changed. Yeah. And so that's the part that I I think continues to astound me is, um, outsiders to romance are kind of like, aren't they all books all the same? And I was like, no, yes. And no. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, there's something it delivers to me every time. And hearing Sandra Brown verbalize what she wants to do in her books really made that clear to me, but also so much has changed.
1: Yeah. Well, it was interesting because reading Blind Tiger, which is, Probably 60% mystery slash thriller, 40% romance really gave me a feel for, there were so many moments where I thought, oh, that's Sandra Brown. That's yes. San, like, this feels, it's a, it's a lesson in authorial voice reading that book, mm-hmm. you know, 30 years after I read my first Sandra Brown novel. Um, and I, because I, I can still hear her in it. And then after meeting her, you sort of have this moment where you're like, oh, it all connects in this really cool way. Um, but also it it feels like the romance there is a Sandra Brown romance, yes. not a romance of an author who just started this year. And that is also very cool. I think the work of what, what we have talked about, we want us wanting this season to be, feels like um, we're really, in that first interview, it just felt like, okay, we're starting to see already The long road. And I'm really excited about that. I think one other
2: thing I've been thinking a lot about is, um, I think I mentioned a couple times here and there, there's a podcast I really enjoy listening to with my husband called Hit Parade, which is about pop music. And it talks about, like, sort of opens with, like, we're going to talk about, like, you know, disco and Donna Summer, but then it traces back, right, all of the people that sort of influenced that music. And then there's sort of a part where it's like, Who has Donna Summer influenced, right? That's a really good episode, everybody, by the way. Um, But one of the things I was thinking about as we talked to Sandra Brown was Tia Williams. So we interviewed Mm -hmm. Tia Williams about her book, Seven Days in June. um, Last season. Last season. But Tia Williams talked about her love of slow heat in heaven and Sandra Brown. And when I thought about it, it made perfect sense because I could see sort of um, the influence. And I think that's the part about knowing, I mean, you know, my brain's got to be good for something, I guess, is it is really fascinating. We talk about like the romance family tree and sort of how who influences who. I think that's another thing we are hoping that these Trailblazer episodes can do is really show you the people who – um You know, these things are all connected. Every romance has that common DNA, but some people tune in more to some authors than others. And it's really, that was another fascinating thing for me.
1: What's remarkable to me is how all of these people that we've talked to have been able to name other authors who inspired them, pushed them, kept them moving, you know, helped them in the early days of their career. And I think that is... When As as I think about this piece of it, I keep coming back to this heroine's journey question that we've talked about so much when we're talking about the actual books. But um, the heroine's journey is really the journey of a lot of these writers, too. Um, Just finding community, writing romance, romance in general, writing is such a lonely road. Um, But I don't think any of us in romance are out of it get anywhere without a community and so it's really wonderful to hear those names spoken
2: yes yeah so i hope everyone enjoyed this conversation as much as we did
1: it was the best
2: there are some (laughs) we have a lot of awesome things teed up for you we have written some talk about swinging for the fences if you even knew the emails we've been sending to people (laughs) (laughs) we're not clearing
1: all the fences but we sure are trying we're trying um (laughs)
2: And you know what? I think the other thing that I will try and do in show notes is um, maybe put some of our favorites of these authors, right? So they're talking. We've asked about their favorites, books that they
1: love. But um, so show notes, I hope, will be um, something else. <laughs> That's right. I did just have a moment where I was like, should we read Slow Heat in Heaven? I mean, we read the Texas book, but...
2: You know, know what list. I did when we read that Did book, you reread it? I re- when we did that's that? one I reread when we did Sandra Brown. So I will make sure we um, link to
1: that episode as well for all of you. That's right. Oh, also, how cool was it that she'd clearly listened to our Sandra Brown episode? That'd be one talk about it. Did you want it was amazing. It was amazing. She had like she had like prepped information about our yeah. favorite books. And honest to God, like what a class act. Yeah. She was a Sandra thing. Brown. You're the best. (laughs) Thank you so much. Come back anytime. (laughs) Um, And that's that. You've been listening to Faded Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I'm Jennifer Prokop. You can find us on Instagram at
2: Faded Mates Pod, on Twitter at Faded Mates, and
1: in your ear holes every week. Every week at FadedMates.net or on your favorite podcatcher. Uh, You can like and follow us on your favorite podcatcher and you won't miss a single episode. We've got a lot cooking for season four. Also at FadedMates.net, you can buy merch and stickers from best friend Kelly and uh, Jordan Danae. There's also, ooh, you guys, for season four, there's a FadedMates tote bag now and a FadedMates mug. So there you go. Don't say we never do anything for you. (laughs) Have a great week. We hope you're reading something great. Next week is an interstitial week. Uh, We haven't talked about the trope yet. We're going to do that now. (laughs) We'll figure it out, everybody. We prep for Sandra Brown and not for next week. So (laughs) on brand, as always. We'll be there.